0: If you have a Bible, I'm going to be reading from Matthew 28 this morning. Matthew 28. Um, So we're in week 10 of 11 as we've been going through the Nicene Creed, as Polly said, the fundamentals of the Christian faith, the central bricks essentially of Christianity, the, the beliefs and the ideas that make the tower, the structure that is Christianity. And if you take any one of these bricks away, the whole thing falls apart. We've talked in terms of things that Christians believe being written in pencil, stuff that we believe but throughout our lives we might change it and rub it out and we're not sure and people disagree and differ, things that are written in pen, things that are really important to us that it's unlikely that we would change and then things that are written in blood. The Nicene Creed, the foundational statements of what Christianity is about, is the stuff that's written in blood. You don't change this and keep Christianity. We are, in that sense, blood relatives with every Christian who's ever lived uh, and every Christian who's alive today across the planet. Blood relatives united by the blood of Christ, believing in him and his precious work for us. And um, the, the Creed takes you on this journey In considering ultimate reality and what's most real and true, and then what's important and how that applies to our life, it starts by talking about God as being one God. And actually, as you look around the world, there's a lot of unity in the world, there's a lot of oneness. We have one sky, and one piece of land, and one sea. God is one. It says that we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, and then talks about God the Father as being also, God also being the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That though there's one God, he's expressed in three different persons. And that also fits with our experience of the world, because the world is diverse. It's not just one, it's diverse. There's many different people, many different nationalities, and cultures, and languages, and many different animals, and plants. and, And ultimate reality then, the thing that's most true, is that it is united, that there is one but he's also three, he's diverse, and the human being a human flourishing expresses something of God. And so the creed takes you on this journey from God being Father, Son, Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who speaks. And then last week, we had our friend Moshdaba with us, who's an Iranian Christian, and he unpacked this idea that uh, well, he unpacked what it says in the Creed about the Church that we believe in one holy apostolic Church, and he said that just as ultimate reality is one and three, so it is in the Church that we express in community together something of the the oneness of god we 're one people, but the diversity of god we 're many different people, and that a Christian identity is best expressed and found in community with other Christians. It was very moving last week; he he showed, some, he showed a picture at the end of his sermon of some friends of his in Iran who were arrested and imprisoned just last week for being Christians. And he said, people might wonder, why do Christians gather in countries where they know it's illegal to gather, where they know they can be imprisoned? He himself was in prison for four years in his early 20s. Why would Christians gather when you know it's illegal to gather and you could be thrown in prison for gathering to pray? And he said, but God is one but th- and three, that God is in community, and our identity as believers is found in that God. And there's something very special about learning to be and gather together as God's people. I learn about God when I spend time with God's people, and I myself discover my identity when I relate to other people, that we are not just individuals isolated and on our own. You cannot flourish fully, as an, as an isolated individual person, you and I are designed to be part of a body, a people, a family, the church. She said we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church, which we're going to be looking at a bit more together today. Um, we're looking at this statement in the creed. Um, we believe in one, or on, um, a holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Um, we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And we're going to unpack what that looks like together by reading from Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain on which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This passage of scripture is called often the Great Commission. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you'll have read it or heard about it, It's the Great Commission where Jesus essentially gives his marching orders to the church. This is what I want you to do now. Jesus has died. He's been raised to life. And by the way, I always love the honesty of the Bible. Uh, If you were trying to manipulate and cajole a group of people to believe something that wasn't real, you would never include the fact that some doubted. Um, But the Bible does because it's honest and we can trust it. It says, some doubted what was, uh, what was before them in the person of Jesus resurrected from the dead. was so incredible and difficult to understand and get their minds around that, of course, some doubted. How, is this really the case, that this man who we saw crucified a few days before is now here in front of us? Some doubted, it says. So the Great Commission, and what Jesus says in this, are two obvious things immediately from the passage. Number one, making disciples, what Christians are told to do, making disciples involves baptizing them. Uh, That baptizing a person in response to their decision to be a disciple of Christ is an essential and global and universal part of what it means to be a Christian. That Christians everywhere, ever since this was spoken, have practiced that. So whatever part of the world you come from or whatever stream of Christianity you find yourself in, people get baptized. Number two, one, another thing that's obvious from this text is that being baptized is a way of identification with the God that Jesus has told them about. So when you're baptized, you're baptized into the name of in identity with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So to be baptized is to align yourself with this God, as opposed to all of the other, certainly in Jesus' day and also in ours, all of the other deities and idol gods around in the world. Baptism for a Christian is identification with the Christian God, the Father, Son, and Spirit God. But the question, if you're, if you're me or if you're just thinking things through, your question when you read this might be, why though? Why get baptized? What's that all about? What's the point of it? Oh, Um, maybe we'll have punctuated horns throughout the dramatic moments in the sermon this morning. Why baptism? See, in our our society, religious symbols aren't particularly common, um, but baptism as a concept so if we think about it, isn't uncommon to us as a concept of what it means. We, we have the expression uh, to a baptism of fire, meaning some kind of dramatic or abrupt initiation into something. A baptism of fire. Your first day in the office, in a new job, everything goes wrong. Baptism of fire. Or you take the baby home from the hospital and you, you go to bed and you're woken in the middle of the night in a baptism of fire. There's this abrupt, rude awakening and interruption into your life. The word baptism uh, has to do with the idea of being drenched, or plunged into something, immersed into something, often abruptly. And in the ancient world, the world where Jesus is speaking, the word isn't a technical term like it is for us, baptism in the church. The word simply means drench. And so it, in various writings of the day, People talk about sunken ships being baptized in water. There's even an early recipe in which someone's talking about how to, how to pickle some vegetables, and they say you have to baptize the, whatever it is into the vinegar. You baptize. It's not a technical word. You have to plunge it. You have to drench it. And in that sense, we are baptized every day. Um, when you go swimming you're baptized when you walk out into the rain you're baptized in the rain when you enter a concert or a, a stadium of some kind you're baptized you're immersed in the noise in the environment baptism isn't a particularly technical term and in the bible there's many different baptisms Jesus talks of his death as being a baptism John the Baptist came to prepare people for the coming Messiah, Jesus, and he came to baptize them in preparation. His baptism was a a baptism of repentance, of turning to to become ready for the Messiah to come. Um, Elsewhere, we read of baptism in the Holy Spirit, being immersed into the person of the Holy Spirit and the power he gives to a person. Uh, In one of his letters to a church, the Apostle Paul talks about becoming a Christian as being baptized into Christ Uh, as putting on Christ. If you're baptized, Paul says, you have put on Christ, like putting on a jacket. So baptism is like putting on a jacket. In our church, we baptize people in a tank of water. We did it a few months ago here. In response to someone's decision to live for Christ, we stand them in a big tank of water. We plunge them into it. We get them out of it. Everyone cheers and celebrates in response to them getting baptized. Um, I was baptised in a swimming pool in Canterbury. Um, we're baptised in different ways in different places, but still the question stands: but why? Why do people do it? And I think immediately or initially, there's three obvious reasons or things that we can can glean from just what the symbol of baptism means to whoever. Whether you are aware of what's going on on a deeper level, there's three things that are very obvious. Firstly. When someone's baptized, they are lowered into the water. They're brought up out of the water. And they look different. They have been marinated or transformed by the water that they're in. They're, they're up. They're, just, they're dripping wet. Their appearance has changed. Water transforms them and their appearance in some way. In fact, there was um, an amusing example at, at our church over in Eastbourne several years ago. There was a man called Alan who had come to faith later in life and got baptized. And it must have been that his baptism service was the first baptism service he'd ever seen. So he wasn't particularly prepared for it. And he got baptized, loaded into water, came out. And then he's standing next to the baptism tank, just dripping onto the carpet, just soaking wet. And someone said to him, Alan, have you got a towel? And he said, no, I just assumed one would be provided for me. Because he's just drenched. His whole appearance and demeanor has been transformed by the water. When you get baptized as a Christian, that, what's going on on the surface, is, points to what's happened underneath. Your identity has changed in a very dramatic way. I, when I, I remember when I got baptized. Prior to being baptized, I was a Christian. I believed in God. Or depending on what time of the week you caught me, I believed in God. I was up and down and back and forth. And I believe in God. I want to live Him. No, I don't even think there is a God. I don't want to wasting my time with. I was exploring faith. Suddenly I made a decision. No, I'm going to, I've seen enough. I'm going to get baptized. After that baptism, things shifted. My identity changed. Suddenly, publicly, I declared this is who I am. And there was a, a certainty to my faith, a decision that I, would, I had made. When you get baptized, you are changed. Secondly, water, just as a symbol, Regardless of what the theological meanings of baptism are, water is a symbol of of washing in every society, in every culture. When you are lowered into the baptism tank and brought back up, you are washed. You leave your your dirt behind. Uh, Or in one instance we had a few months ago, you leave your earrings behind as well, and we had to spend some time diving down trying to fish them out. Water washes you. It cleanses you. And that's, again, it's a symbol of what baptism's about. In Christ, we believe that when you put your faith and hope in him, you are washed. Your shame is washed off you. Your guilt is taken away. As well as your identity being changed, your fear, your sin is washed. It's gone. And thirdly, just the way that we practice baptism, something that's very obvious as to the meaning of it, is that baptism is a burial and it is a resurrection. it just looks like that. People are lowered down and they're brought back up. In Romans chapter six, the Apostle Paul writes to the church there, and he says this. He says, Do you know that all of us who've been baptized into Jesus have been baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. So baptism is a burial and it's a rebirth. And so people get baptized because it means those, th- those three things just very obviously. And John alluded to this in, uh, when he was leaving actually in reference to communion. Symbols and doing symbolic acts is something that has a lot of power. It's very powerful for us. We We have symbols in society like a marriage ceremony, we understand the power and importance of that. And actually one of the the best, I guess most dramatic ways that people practice baptism over history, I think comes from a man named Cyril of Jerusalem who wrote in the fourth century about their baptism process. Uh, shortly after Christ and the church got going, they began developing baptism classes to prepare people for it, sometimes up, to, sometimes up to a year long to prepare people for their baptism. But Cyril of Jerusalem writes this, that when a person gets baptized, they begin by facing west, which is the, the land of darkness. They face the west, which is that, this end, isn't it? Yes, they face this end, uh, west and east, because of the window. Um, they face west, they stretch their hand out, and they renounce the devil and his works. They say, Satan, I spit at you. I renounce my old gods. I don't want anything to do with you. They face the west. And then they turn and face the east, which is the land of light where the sun rises. And they affirm their belief in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from where the light comes from. After that, they're led off into an inner chamber. Um, for obvious re- th- where where they, I'm not suggesting we do this, they, they remove all of their clothes. Um, they, they practice single-sex baptisms. Uh, they remove all of their clothes, enter the inner chamber as a symbol of taking off their old life, their old me with all of its outer trappings, and also as a way of identifying with Jesus who was crucified naked for us. Standing naked, they're then anointed with oil, oil is poured over them as a symbol of casting out the evil and exorcism, the dark forces in a person's life. After that, they are then taken into some water where they were baptized three times in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Also in some, it's symbolic of the three days that Jesus was dead in the tomb. They're then brought up out of the water Anointed with a different kind of oil, this time on the forehead, on the ears, on the nostrils and on the chest, as a symbol of the removal of our sin, of the, of the ears that we've been given to hear the gospel, of being the aroma and fragrance of Christ and of having Christ as our breastplate of righteousness. Once that's happened, they're then given new clothes, white garments as an expression of their purity in Christ and they're then led out to rejoin the church and have communion for the first time as a Christian. Now, I'm not suggesting we do all of that, but you can see in that there's a, there's a rich Drama that gets played out, that communicates to the person being baptized, just the the significance of the baptism and what they're doing. It tells a story, as John said. Communion tells a story and it catches us up in it. So in Matthew 28, that's one thing that Jesus said just quite obviously, go and baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christians have always done that. They do it different ways around the planet, but they've always done it. What's less obvious is perhaps the link in the creed that the creed makes between the church and baptism. It says we believe in one holy apostolic church and then it says we believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Why is it stuck those two together? Well, let's see. Jesus alludes to it here, I think, in Matthew 28 and that's why the, the writers of the creed pick up on it. So the, we read out, we believe in one holy Catholic an apostolic church, Um, words that for many of us seem unfamiliar. Holy, the word holy means to be set apart or devoted to God. The church is holy, belongs to him. We believe in a Catholic church, uh, which is a, a word that we don't use too much. It means universal or general Uh, Not to be confused with Roman Catholic as an expression of the body of Christ, but the Catholic Church, the universal or general church. And then the word apostolic comes from the Greek word that means to send. The church has been sent. And you see it here in Matthew 28. Jesus says this. First of all, he says, go into all the world. And that word go is a commissioning, sending word. He's, He's apostoling the church. We are an apostolic people. We have been sent by Jesus, our Messiah, and that doesn't—that doesn't mean that you know you have to leave leave that location and go somewhere else. It's recognizing whatever you do, wherever you go, you are a sent individual. You've been propelled out by the Messiah and given marching orders, a mission to be on. So you go to your family, you go to your place of work, you go wherever you go as one sent by Christ. The church has done that. And so ever since then, Christians have been going. And it's perhaps something that, that's worth us all asking at least once a year, God, do you want me to go anywhere this year? Are you sending me somewhere else? There's, church, there's people who don't know Jesus, never heard the gospel. Are you sending me? Are you telling me, do I need to go to them? But we're a sent people. We're apostolic. We're also a universal or Catholic people because he says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, everywhere you go, of all people groups, partly what Jesus is doing is he's, he's telling his Jewish people, this strip of land is no longer the sacred patch of earth on planet earth, prior to this, I think the Jewish people, well they did, they believed this land, the land of Israel has been given to us by God, Jesus comes and says, now go from here into all the world. And everywhere you put your foot is the holy promised land from God. But go into all nations. You're a universal people. And lastly, and make disciples, teaching them to obey. And look, I will be with you. We are his. We obey him. We pledge allegiance to him. We're baptized into him. So we are a holy Catholic and apostolic people. But why does the creed and Jesus then put these two things together, baptism and the church? And I think the answer to that question is because in putting these two things together, he's showing us what it is that we're meant to live for, what we're made to live in and to live for. Many of us would, would resonate with the idea that deep within you, there's a desire to be part of something significant, something more meaningful than just your four score years and ten and just your own consuming empire building. There's a desire in each of us to make our lives count. And it's that that I think Jesus offers us. And it's what baptism is an entrance into. So consider the um, consider the the beach. Uh, we're we're a few hundred yards from the sea. Um, As the sun comes up, no doubt more and more people through the day will be going to the beach and and having fun and paddling and kayaking and enjoying the water. It's a great place to live, Seaford, isn't it? One of the best places on the earth. Um, This past week, I had the misfortune of having to leave Seaford for a few days. Uh, I I was in London for a conference, and Had I wanted to, I could have visited the River Thames, and I could have paddled in the River Thames. I could have had an ice cream by the River Thames and done all the things that I would have done ordinarily by the beach in Seaford. I didn't because it's the River Thames. Um, But if I was was really pining after and missing Seaford, the beach in Seaford, the Thames would have helped me because the Thames, my mind would have gone there, the Thames, between the Thames and between the sea, there is an uninterrupted body of water. That so in one sense to be in the Thames is to also be in the, the water that is also seafood water because it's one uninterrupted body of water, which is nice. Uh, now, 12 years ago when I got married, uh, I had the privilege, we saved up our money, had the privilege of going on honeymoon to Goa in India. This is Amy on the beach there. Um, the Indian Ocean was beautiful and warm and exotic and she's going to thank me for putting that picture up later. Um, in India, we didn't, we didn't spend much time in the swimming pool because it was so hot, because the air was so hot, Every, all the water around you was warm, so the sea was the only place of refreshment that we could go. Now, that was a lovely time, 12 years ago, and from time to time I will get the photos out, we can take that away now, I'll get the photo, that was just to um, get myself in trouble later. Uh, From time to time, I'll get the photos out and I'll remember our honeymoon. Now, if I missed, if I was missing the Indian Ocean and pining after it, I could stand in the water and seafood and be connected to the Indian Ocean because between there, there is an uninterrupted body of water between the Indian Ocean and me. If I had the strength, I could swim there or I could kayak there. I could revisit that stretch of water, which means... Arguably, if nothing else, means you don't need to go on holiday to Tenerife or Corfu. You can just go to Dungeness or Skegness. It's, the water is the same. You're connected. It's amazing. I don't, I don't know if you've ever really thought about it, but put your face in the water, in the sea. You could be in the Indian Ocean. You could be. It will be a little bit colder, but you're connected. Now, the point is, between the Indian Ocean and us, There there are dozens of different countries and cultures and multiple different languages spoken. People sound different, people look different, but those people, though many, though different, are connected by this one body of water that covers the planet. Baptism is like that. Baptism is the entranceway into the whole Because the church, you see, though many and diverse, is one, connected by one baptism for the forgiveness of sins whether you are a Seafordian or a Singaporean or an African or English or Flemish or Berean, whether old or young or rich or poor, whether you live in the 21st century or you lived in the 16th century Europe or 1st century AD, the people that Jesus was speaking to, we are all united by this one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And in that sense, when you're baptized, you are invited into that drama To that story, you're caught up in something so much bigger than you. In the West, we've made so much of the individual that we we think baptism is mostly about my individual expression of faith. And it is. But it's also about something much bigger. Do you see? It's exciting. It's rich. This is what the Apostle Paul says in um, Ephesians 4, verse 3. He says, let's find it. He says you should be eager to maintain the unity, the oneness of the church. Remembering that there is, and then he lists seven things. There is one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, one God and the Father of all. You see, whoever you are, when you enter into the waters of baptism you are becoming part of the oneness of God's people the oneness of God's plan the oneness of God's hope in the world and you're stepping away you're stepping away from a life of self a life of consuming 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 individual empire building and you're stepping into something larger and bigger and richer and thicker and grander than anything else you could hope that your life could be part of that's why baptism matters that's why it's so significant That's why it's part of the creed. That's why Jesus lumps it together with we believe in one church and also one baptism because together they're part of the universal people of God and that's why we declare that we believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of our sins. I started by saying there's many different baptisms. Jesus is referred to his death as baptism. You have a shower in the morning, you're being drenched, you're being baptized. There's many different things that you can be immersed into in this world. But there's only one that is a baptism for the forgiveness of your sins, for the removal of your shame, shame, for the cleansing of your, the removing of your guilt, the cleansing of your guilt, for the entrance into a new life and a new hope. And it's that, church, that we have the privilege of being part of. And it's that, if you're not a believer, that Jesus invites you to come and be part of. You can step into that story. Let's pray together.